So Jesus was known for calling men out. For calling them away from something. From calling them away from what they knew. Calling them away from their comforts. But the thing that strikes me about Jesus calling people out was he wasn't calling them out unto a moment. He wasn't calling them out for a meeting or a gathering. He wasn't calling them out to make a decision. in regards to something in the future. He was calling people out unto something that you would not return from. Do we understand that? When we talk about giving our lives to Christ or accepting Jesus or the biblical error which is really just a lie and completely not doctrinally sound about giving your heart to Jesus. Jesus doesn't want your heart, people. Your heart is sinful and wicked and it originates in the first Adam lineage. It's vile It needs exchanged for the Ezekiel heart of flesh that can feel and respond to the voice of its creator. But what is it Jesus is calling us unto? What do we mean when we tell our children to respond to the call of Jesus? What are we insinuating? I would say we need to know. We must know for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren, for people we meet in the workplace or at the grocery store when we extend the gift of salvation. What are we inviting people unto? Is there any cost involved? Is the gospel, trying to think of a word that's appropriate, but is the gospel prostituted? Is it just given out as something that it is not really even by nature? Without question, it's misrepresented. I mean, that's a given. Most often, it's not even doctrinally sound. It's not even biblically sound. The gospel has become an invitation into an answer to all of your problems. Are you addicted? Get Jesus. Are you sad and depressed? You need Jesus. 
Are you broke and financially strapped because of your poor decisions in life? Well, get Jesus. He will fix it all. Are you morally bankrupt and can't find your way? Well, get Jesus and he'll just wash you clean and you'll magically be pleasing to God and somehow given value. This is not biblically right. But that's not my intention to talk about that although necessary to talk about. The call to follow me that Jesus spoke in the word, the call to the disciples was to throw down your nets, throw down your livelihood, throw down your security, throw it down and come, period. Not for some weekend conference. Not to join into a membership opportunity to gain some facade of identity with some corporate reality that masquerades as the body of Christ. No. Follow Jesus with your life's endeavors, your hopes, your dreams, your strengths, your weaknesses, your plans, your family, where you live, what you do, what you think, what you eat, every single function of your life, lay it down and follow me. And so I've been thinking on that, and the Lord has been pressing that deep into my soul about asking myself, am I a follower of Jesus? All you need to be in 2019 to be quoted as being a follower of Jesus. Primarily you attend church, but even now that's not necessary. I follow Jesus in my own way. I do house meetings. I do Bible studies. I do outreach ministry. I'm a prophet. I'm a teacher. I'm a follower of Jesus. Okay. But what do we use to gauge a follower of Jesus? What by the scripture alone signifies one individual is a follower of Jesus? Because the criteria I see in Scripture does not line up with the, the criteria I see in culture. I'm saying Christian culture. In mainstream Christianity, in home gatherings, which all of these I've been a part of, by the way. And it's not that these just didn't work. I tried that. It didn't work. What's next? No. It's a matter of going to the scriptures and giving myself to a follow me reality that enters into something supernatural that only the Spirit of God can empower me to accomplish. 
It is why Jesus said, it's better that I go so that the Spirit can come and indwell a corporate body reality upon the earth, releasing the manifest glory to all of creation, to the heavenly places. What about that stuff? What about that follow Jesus reality? And I'm not stuck anymore about how I don't see it. I'm not hung up anymore about where is it, God? And just pull up a chair there and stare at it. Or rather stare at what it is not, more importantly, is what I've done. I did that for years. In justifiable disgruntledness of all the ways I've tried to be the body and to know God and to demonstrate God and to, quote, follow Jesus. But only when I unplug from all these things, all these patterns and ways that again, more than just didn't work. Tried that, didn't work. Please hear, I'm saying it's not just bound to those terms, but like It didn't sit in me spiritually. It didn't line up with the scriptures that I read when I read things and what I read Paul tell me and what I read in Hebrews speak of the matter of the corporate body of Christ and the demonstration of the followers of Jesus. Where is that? Where in the world are the followers of Jesus that really do believe they're not supposed to be of the world, although in it? Where are the followers of Jesus who really believe that when Jesus said, lay down your nets and follow me, that he really meant that? That that was not some metaphorical teaching. That was not some parable he told a bunch of children on a beach beside the sea one beautiful afternoon. These men were working and laboring and doing their livelihood and fixing to go home to their parents or to their children or to their brothers and sisters and have dinner that night and then go back in the morning and fish again. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, lay everything down that is you, that makes up you and your life and your endeavors and your ideas and your plans and follow me. So again I ask, what of the follow me reality in the church today, in my generation? Where is it? And I just feel this call, and I've moved away from the where is it position a while ago. That's old news. And I've been endeavoring to be it, to establish it in my life and in my household and in the fellowship of believers I have here, though few we are. And then we don't have the corner on some revelation of God that we have unearthed. But you know what? We're trying to Peer into an ancient way that 
that we just have to honestly say most people don't believe is possible anymore. Those things that Paul said, well, you know, that was cultural. That was only really applicable to their circumstance. I mean, really. It's 2019. The The world doesn't work that way anymore. Right? Those words in Hebrews about what the capital C church is to be on the earth. Oh, come on now. Let's calm down. We won't reach anybody if we live that way. We won't be a light to the world if we're not relevant. Oh. Okay. I guess I should tear Hebrews out of my Bible then, right? I mean, should we should we not just blatantly say what is being implied? No. Let's not. Let's just burn it and instead give ourselves to the follow Jesus reality. And here's where this gets real for me. I'm a very visual person. I'm a person who, when I read the scriptures, for whatever reason, I studied the early church fathers 10 years ago, I don't know, contemplative prayer, immersion into the scriptures. Like when you read a scripture, is it too mystic? Is it too mystic? And like, are we so afraid we're gonna be spiritual? I don't know. Mystics become all new agey if we try to place ourselves into the stories and accounts and writers of the word of God? I mean, are we scared of that? Why in the world, if so, why would that scare me? That's what a lot of first, second, third century believers and even further did. Let's let's meditate on the word of God and like what was that person feeling? What was that person experiencing? What were they going through when they wrote that? Or when that account was written about them? Let's place ourselves into that moment and glean all that we can that the writer of that eternal word of God was preserved for. Let's give ourselves to that. So in doing that, these things that could just be just be like minimized to good teachings or I could write about it and expound on it and it's kind of encouraging and maybe give a little different aspect and you could write about it and give a little different opinion and and Bill over there could write about it and he could give another little facet to it and we could all gather that together and be inspired and encouraged. Yes, that's fine. Let's do that. But I believe there's something to, as a spiritual man, like submerging ourselves into the eternal word of God. Experientially allowing it 
to do a work in my spiritual man and not just my intellect, not just my reasoning, not just my natural understanding, but something beyond that, something eternal in me that is alive, the living word, the the word of God is what? It's living, it's active. It cuts, it divides. That is what is it, it is intended to do. That is its purpose. But we have to be postured and positioned and give ourselves for it to accomplish its purpose in us. One, we have to be a spiritual man. Two, we have to be postured to receive the eternal word as it was written and intended to accomplish in us. It's not a magic wand, brothers. So the call to follow Jesus. Jesus said some things that were so incredibly offensive when he walked this earth those short years. He was a walking God-man loaded with potential offense. Because everything he did and said opposed the individual mindset of the first Adam that ruled and reigned the earth and continues to today. The fallen nature that says, I must preserve myself. And he came, Jesus came and said, hey, nobody takes my life, I lay it down. I don't value my life. And I'm God in the flesh and I don't value my life. That alone we could spend some time on. We're but dust formed from the ground, destined to return to it. And we value our life. Although it's a breath, it's a vapor, it is here and it's gone. It burns up like grass, it blows through and we're done in the natural sense. But we don't live that way. We value it. So when the call of follow me comes, we, we may count the cost. We may consider. But can we just be honest and say most of mainstream Christianity in this age doesn't really think that way. I'm not being judgmental. I'm just saying I'm 45 years old now. I've been in and out of a lot of movements and a lot of denominations, a lot of attempts, a lot of things. I'm no professional on the matter, but I've seen enough. So when the follow me call comes out, What is the follow me call? If it's not these things, if it's not all these things I mentioned briefly a few minutes ago, then what is it? What is it? What does it mean? What was Jesus saying? What was he calling calling those people out? What is he calling us out unto? And what does it even mean to follow him? Well, I've got some visuals that that to me are very moving, very stirring.
The first one, I'm going to have to just really condense this down. Was This was months ago about Lot's wife. My wife kept telling me, you got to look into Lot's wife. There's something about Lot's wife. Sweetie, make room for Lot's wife. Okay, all right. I was looking at who knows what then. Five, six months ago. All right, well, finally. All right, I'm going to give myself to looking into Lot's wife. But isn't it pretty much cut and dry? I mean, everybody knows what happens. It's a Sunday school story that goes all the way back to when we were five years old. Don't be like Lot's wife. Bad. Bad lady. Don't be her. Oh, next, turn the page. No. This is our immaturity in approaching the scriptures. And so, like, in summary, I mean, like, very much condensed down for the sake of time. Lot's wife, she was called. Out. Obviously, she was called out of Sodom. We don't know her history. We don't know anything about her. We're told very little about her period. But she was called out to leave. Into what? We know. Don't look back. Like a command. Very clear. Go outside of the city and keep going. Flee. But what we fail to really think about is that she, because we don't know if Lot met her there, several people came with them into Sodom. We don't know if she was one or not. We're not told. But it at least begs the question, is it possible that she was from Sodom, born and raised, Let's just assume it's possible her parents live there, her brothers. Maybe she has a younger sister. Maybe her best friends that she cooks with and cleans with and runs her house with. They're back there. And the destruction is coming. Angels are sent from God Himself. To say with natural words, flee. They stayed the night in her house, people. Angels spent the night in Lot's wife's house and said, you have to get out of here. And the judgment of God's not coming until you leave. But we're telling you, you have to leave. Get out. And so herein lies the dilemma of what she was experiencing. We can't even imagine or envision it, but little. And so we in our arrogance and pride would say, Oh, Lot's wife, how dare she turn and look back? And I can see her on the chalkboard in Sunday school when I was a child about how poorly she was painted, how she was just the poster child of stupidity. How dare she look back? She got what she deserved, right? 
pillar of salt, boom, judgment of God. You better believe judgment of God. She had it coming. She knew. She was warned. She should have kept going. Turn the page. She was called out. She was disobedient. The soberness of the call, she, for whatever reason, she could not resist the looking back unto what she formerly knew. But can we give ourselves to think about what she was leaving? Because all we're told in in most Christianity is how Sodom deserved destruction because they were horrible homosexuals and like, they have it coming, so get out, right? Burn them up, Lord. Wretched sinners. But these were people. These were people created in the image of God that were perhaps her family. So can we at least not propose a question that maybe she looked back because her heart was grieved at what she had to leave? And I'm taking that out as an Old Testament example of the follow me reality that we see in the New Testament of Jesus. The sober reality of coming out of something. Coming out of an identity. And the instruction and the command of, hey, don't look back. Don't do it. Keep moving. Go. Your deliverance is not secure until you go all the way out. Because the part of the story that I probably don't need to go into that just struck me so strongly was that the angels grabbed them by the wrist and removed them, I believe, outside of the city gates. They took them out to some point. They, they rescued them to an extent, but the command was to go. The command was to keep going. And in her resistance and disobedience of not continuing the going, she got the judgment of God that was not for her. It was not intended for her. Or else it would have come when she yet remained back in the city. So story two. Which is about the parables, about the calls that Jesus gave. When he called the disciples, as we've already said, he told them to leave everything and follow him. Leave your father, leave your mother hate your family. Everything Jesus spoke flew in the face of the communal familial life that that day and time knew as right and valuable. And Jesus' call was offensive. And so the parable goes on to say, and Jesus' words go resoundingly clear The call comes to go and to follow. Oh, God, I can't. We see the feast, you know, the the 
invitations to the master's table. People are busy doing this. They're busy doing that. Gosh, God says, go go get anybody. Go out in the streets. My desire is that this table is, my house is full. My desire is that it's full. Get anyone who will come. If the ones who are selected say, they don't have time for me, go get anyone and bring them in. Because the goal is that someone is in because I desire people to be at my table. And so I had this vision of someone here's father dying. A brother's father dying. And he received a phone call from his mom and said, Son, your dad died this morning. And she's weeping. And she says, I don't know what to do. She's distraught. And he says, oh, mom, we'll be right there. I'm getting my wife and the children. We're coming, we're coming straight down. And as he opens the door to his house to go out, to begin to load the car to go down to his family, to his grieving mother, Jesus is standing there. And Jesus says, hey, follow me. What? Jesus, don't you know? I just got the phone call that my dad died. What about my children? What about my mom? What about me? Don't you see I'm grieving? Jesus says, oh, I I know fully. We're leaving right now. Follow me. Follow me. And therein lies the weight of the call to follow me. Because Jesus said, what? Let the dead bury the dead. Are you serious? Do we get that? Do we believe Jesus really said that or not? And then I saw another brother here playing out in the backyard, a large area, running around behind the house with their children, playing on a beautiful spring day with green grass and the sun shining. The children are running around barefoot. And he hears his name being called from the other side of the house on the front. And so he goes around to the front and Jesus is standing there. And he says, follow me. Oh, yes, Jesus recognizes him. Yes, Lord. Uh, Let me go tell my children goodbye. I've got to tell my wife. You're here. I've got to tell my children that I guess I'll be back. I don't know. I mean, Jesus is here. I have to go. I've given him my life. And Jesus says, he has the audacity to say, No, brother, if you are going to be called according to my name, we go now. And he turns and says, he sees his children run around the backyard playing and he says, but my children, am I ever going to see them again, Jesus? 
And all Jesus says is follow me. And therein lies, do we believe we are called to follow Jesus in like manner, in such intensity, with such seriousness and soberness? Do we believe that that is in fact what we are saying we will do? And lastly, go back to the Old Testament with Abraham and Isaac. I just had this vision of just in my imagination of the call for Abraham to go up and take his son to sacrifice him. I have a six, I have a six-year-old son. It's irrelevant whether he was the same age as Isaac and all that. I'm not making those types of comparisons, but in general, this lands in me. So Abraham covenants with God. He gets the son that is promised by God himself. And then God requires that son to be sacrificed. And so the other morning here, the brothers were praying and we were asking the Lord for clarity on some things, some hard things. Lord, give us clarity. We're in agreement. God, we need clarity. And I just felt the unction of the Holy Spirit in me convict me and said, do you even know what you're asking? Okay, Lord, maybe I don't. What is it? And so I started to think about Abraham and that specific moment of him taking Isaac up the mountain. The journey, the three, four day journey up to the mountain to sacrifice his son. And I started thinking about, I felt the Lord literally ask my heart, my imagination, did Abraham have clarity, Joel? Did Abraham have clarity marching up there with his son? Well, yes, he sure did. He had clarity of all clarity. He had to, to do that act in obedience, in faith. Okay, so I started asking myself, why did he have clarity? How did he have clarity? And then I felt the, the revelation, if you will, in a rightful sense, not in an exaggerated, hyper-spiritual sense, but the understanding in me of clarity does not reside in disclosure. When Jesus says, follow me, and a man of faith says, yes, I will follow, he doesn't say, I will follow if. I will follow when. He cannot say, when you disclose to me every step that will happen from here on, and if I agree, I will sign my name on the line, yes, I will go. That's not faith. That's not the clarity that Abraham walked in and taught us from the scriptures, recorded for us unto this purpose. When the call to follow me came out to Abraham, yes, Lord, we will go. And he marched up there, day one, day two, day three, day four. We see it on the horizon. Son, this is our goal. 
we're going, and the Lord will provide. No disclosure. No promise of clarity of events. A command and the faith and the action, the works, based upon the faith. A demonstration in the outward of an inward reality. All the way up to the point where the blade is elevated in the air, coming down upon the chest of his son, and an angel stops him at the very last second and says, Abraham, stop. Your faith is real. Paraphrasing. You have covenanted with God. And your faith will go throughout all generations for those who will follow in your footsteps. All the way to today for those who will enter into that reality, who will enter into that call of Jesus to say, follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. Leave the city behind. Go all the way out and don't stop and look back. Forsake your father and mother. Be willing to sacrifice your most valuable thing, which may, in metaphorically speaking, be your son, your most valued promise. Even that place, even the promise that originated in God has to be surrendered to him. So the next time you read in Scripture, or someone asks you, or someone says anything around the realm of, what does it mean to follow Jesus? I pray that this little message on a little recorder sitting in my truck in a gas station parking lot in a tiny nowhere hick town in southwest Virginia radically gets into your spirit, and into your mind, into your understanding, into your innermost place and shakes the foundations of what it means to you to follow Jesus. Because can we not say that we are not fit to function within the kingdom of God and His eternal purposes being revealed through the manifest glory in the capital C church on the earth in these last days, that we cannot be those people unless we yield to the follow me call of this magnitude, of this soberness, of this reality, that anything less than this can be accomplished in my flesh. I can get rid of my television. That's old news. I can stop watching this, listening to this. Big deal. People in the world fast things in their life, give up things for good intentions and good reasons. 
But what about the yielded will? What about the life that says, nobody's taking my life because I lay it down? The yielded will reality that follows in the firstborn of many brethren, the Jesus, God, man, Emmanuel on the earth, the last Adam lineage that I have been invited into by being regenerated and no longer I that live, but he, Jesus the Christ, who lives in me, through me, today, just as what I read in the scriptures. It's not a fable. It's not a story to make me feel good and to put on a t-shirt and brand me as a body Brand me as something I'm not. It's not so simple, brothers. It's not so simple, sisters. It's not so simple, seeker. This is a call that will cost us everything. Our identity, our future... Our hopes, our dreams, our everything. And anything less than that is too simple. Anything less than that is a passivity, faithless gospel. So may we who are striving, and I mean that, I mean striving, like Pursuing God's ordained patterns and ways. And we're going to find them. And when we find them, we're going to sell all that we have and we're going to possess them. Because it is a treasure that has been preserved for us all the way up to 2019 for us to walk into and to begin to become the kingdom of God on the earth and demonstrate to all the principalities and powers the awesome power of the Spirit of God indwelling a body of flesh and bone. In innumerable measure, the Jesus saying, this is why I go away reality. So that we can be the embodied God on the earth. Amen.